Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And Nike, as always, great to see you. Uh, and as our viewers know, we love to highlight exceptional Black men who are doing amazing work that you may not be aware of. Uh, and we want to uh, highlight and bring their works to the fore. And uh, today we have the great honor of welcoming Theodore Johnson, or I know you like Ted, so I'll say Ted Johnson. So Ted, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so Ted, you have an amazing background. You're the director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, a White House fellow, two decades in the Navy. Thank you for your military service. Thank and you. most recently, you are the author of When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and renewing the promise of America. We can't wait to talk to you about that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, as we as we start with all of our guests, just first tell us a little bit about you. You know, young Theodore, um, before you uh, um, had developed your own view of the world. Were there any experiences that you had early that helped shape your worldview? Yeah, absolutely. And again, thanks for for having me on. Um, and so I think it's probably three three things that kind of come together that I, I think help folks understand how my worldview is shaped. Uh, the first is I am the child, uh, I am the grandchild of sharecroppers from uh, South Carolina and Georgia. And my parents were first generation college graduates, spent 30 years each at IBM. And I was raised um, in the suburbs of Raleigh, North Carolina in a predominantly white neighborhood for the vast majority of my life. Um, so my parents are the first formative uh, experience, if you can call it parenthood that uh, for me, um, because of their uh, emphasis on education. Um, my father is like a man's man. And so an introduction to what it, what manhood looked like in practice with all of its um, strengths and, and attributes and, and even some of the, its pitfalls and, and, um, and, and things not to mimic. And my mother was brilliant, a, a, a mathematician in undergrad, again, lots of years at IBM, but her compassion and kindness to others is um, along with her intelligence, sort of juxtaposed against my father's very uh, hands-on masculine way of grappling with the world. And so I took something of that from both of them, that the world was a thing to be wrestled with uh, and to try to bend to your will with an understanding that um, intellect was required to make it happen. And that to the extent you could achieve success, that it was your responsibility to, to sort of not hoard it for yourself, but to be to, to ensure, ensure others had, had similar opportunities. The second was uh, they were both very religious and so I was raised in the black church in North Carolina, um, which meant I was at church four times a week for a Bible study, wow. choir practice, youth night, youth night, and Sunday school slash sermon slash repass on Sundays. Um, <laughs> so that that unyielding uh, optimism and faith you find in black churches is part of my core, as well as um, the the 
this sort of puritanical view of the world. Um, and, and again, with its attributes and, and shortcomings there, there into which a lot of, a lot of focus on self-discipline, but an understanding that sometimes things aren't fair and, and good work and smartness and good behavior is not going to get you where you want to go alone, that it requires other things. And then the last thing is growing up black in a white neighborhood. And for a while, um, I had to traverse these two worlds uh, where I was with my white friends at, at home in the neighborhood and then at school with my black friends who live mostly on the other side of town and having to do the code switching that's required, but in much more intimate ways, um, not just for at the job and at home, but spending the night with you know, the white kids in my neighborhood and then um, and then spending the days at school um, sort of going back between these two worlds. My church was black, but, you know, my football team was mostly white. It's these kinds of things. So th this is kind of where the book comes from, this unyielding faith in the American project, the understanding of, of the, the importance of hard work and yet understanding it's often insufficient in and of itself and a recognition of the role that race plays and how we navigate the world around us, especially in a country with a history like hours. Wow, that's quite a duality. I'm curious, did your parents meet at IBM? Or no, they met at Shaw University, uh, an HBCU in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, they were, you know, in sister of like um, their fraternity and sorority were sort of like the sister brother relationship. And uh, yeah, they met there in the early 70s. Um, and both went to work for IBM right after Shaw. Wow. <laughs> wow. There's a whole story right there. I'm whole sure. story. That's right. Whole story. Wow. So, okay. So then let's fast forward then. What what led you? Because clearly, you know, your journey, uh, White House, uh, your military service, there was a story bubbling up in you, it sounds like, and you you felt the urge to to tell it. What was what was that moment? What was the catalyst? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I, I tell folks this that my that my life, which I try to put into the book um, in, in terms of personal family narrative, it's kind of like the movie Slumdog Millionaire, where you pick up these little bits of knowledge throughout the years, and then eventually you come to this moment where suddenly all those little bits of useless knowledge are the thing that um, uh, helps you ascend to the next stage, you know, sort of make that transition. Uh, so there was no real moment. Uh, you know, I, I went off to an HBCU um, for, for undergrad at Hampton University and then off to the military, frankly, because the military was looking to diversify their officer corps and they had a lot of money to throw around in, the, uh, in doing that. So when they see this black kid is a, a math major at an HBCU, that sort of checks multiple boxes. Um, and so what was, what was supposed to be a four-year career in the military turned into just under 21 years. Wow. Uh, so I didn't grow up with this this um, desire to be a military man, um, but I always grew up thinking that I had something more to offer than just um, up upward mobility. It just aside from just trying to achieve the American dream of doing better than my parents had, I kind of felt like there was more happening, and and I didn't know what that was really. Uh, the the thing that that helped me figure it out was actually the White House Fellowship. The application process is pretty arduous, lots of smart people. Your resume alone is not gonna get you there. So all my military stuff and graduate degrees, none of that mattered, or it, it was par for the course and I needed to figure out how to birdie the thing. Yep. Um, right. And someone told me, um, you need to figure out what your story is. What, what are you gonna tell the folks about yourself that's going to make who you are stick out in their minds? And I didn't have my, my story. And so I immediately turned to my name and my full name is Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III. And so I, you know, talked to my dad a little bit um, 
I visited some scholarship and listened to some speeches and the picture started to come together for me uh, and and help me understand why it was that my great grandparents who were black sharecroppers in South Carolina decided to name their third son after a rich white New Yorker Republican president at, at the turn of the century. And it was because of his dinner with Booker T. Washington, um, who was the first it was the first time that a black man had been invited to the White House to dine with the first family, not through the back door for, for political meetings and then ushered out through the back door like Frederick Douglass had been with Lincoln, but but dining. And that dinner symbolized racial equality or some kind of social equality. A lot of white Americans were not happy about it, especially in the South, but a lot of black Americans in the South were inspired by it, including my great grandparents, who um, was a kind of political strategy almost of naming their child after the sitting president. Actually, at the time he was born, Roosevelt was um, was a former president by then. But they saw no irony in, in naming their child after a president um, despite the, the fact they lived in Jim Crow, uh, uh, South Carolina. And I think it was their way of claiming the promise of America, claiming the country for themselves, despite all evidence to the contrary. And I like to think, and this may be the thing I tell myself to keep me going, that um, the trajectory of my life is some fulfillment of that faith, uh, some answering of that dream from a century ago that they'd never lived to see. I, I, never, I didn't even live to see my grandfather, who was originally named Theodore Roosevelt Johnson, um, and, uh, and and so I've taken that mission on a, a, as a way of, uh, of orienting the things that I, the work that I do and the things that I, I write about. You know, your commentary, Ted, reminds me of something that Glenn Lowry said on one of our earlier podcasts when we first launched, and that was, you know, never bet against America. In the end, we win. And uh, it's clear that your, your grandparents and your great grandparents, they, they clearly were betting on America and believing in the end uh, we would all win. Very powerful, mm. very powerful story. So is, is that the lead in to and, and sort of the, the energy that led to you co-authoring the book? Yeah, so the, the book is, I mean, I think so. Look, the book was supposed to be a, um, a deeper dive into the topic of my dissertation, which was about the political diversity within Black America that we never get to see um, exercised on election days, whether congressional or presidential, because of how uniform or nearly uniform the Black vote is in support of first Republicans once the franchise was granted to us and now, now Democrats. Uh, and then Donald Trump won the 2016 election and no agents or publishing houses cared about Black voters. It was all about the white rural voter and why, you know, Trump country, what happened. So I had to expand the thesis a little bit and talk about the contributions that Black Americans have made to this country and how it's propelled the country to be a better version of itself. And, and, uh, and, and so that's what kind of gave life to the book. My grandparents, my parents, my great grandparents, they all had faith in the country, but it was almost because there, what was, there was no alternative. Um, the, the alternative was that the thing collapses on itself. And if you thought black people were doing poorly under slavery and Jim Crow, just imagine when you've wiped out the idea that we're all created equal or you've ripe, wiped out the unalienable rights that are, are granted to us in the Declaration and, and supposed to be for, you know, uh, further extended in the Constitution. If we don't have those things, those ideals, just imagine how how rampant 
racism would would run then. And so believing in those things that led to Lincoln repurposing the declaration to justify going to war with uh, the, the, the states that seceded. It, it is those are the documents that gave life to King's I have a dream speech. And so the rhetoric is more powerful than the men who um, who who bridled the, 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 the potential of America for so long. And I think that the uh, faith in the idea of America is is the only thing on many, many days in, in the early part of the country all the way through now that has helped those who have been oppressed here see tomorrow and fight for a better tomorrow and, and a better uh you know, a better nation for posterity. So, the, and, and this isn't an uncritical belief in America. It's not an uncritical love of America. It, it chastises and then goes off and dies in wars for her. So it holds both ideas together that you can serve a nation that is that is not delivering on its promise to you, but you're doing so because of your belief in the promise and your hope that the next generation will touch a little bit more of it than you are able to. I, I saw, sorry, Ian, I, I saw a reference in some of the, the summaries of the book to the phrase defeating racism, mm. which I thought was a, I'm sure I've heard that phrase before, but it really struck me and grabbed me. Can you just, can you give us, one, a sense for what that means? And then two, Ian and I were chatting just before this conversation. Are there policymakers and politicians that you feel are pursuing this correct path to defeat it? Yeah, and so it's interesting, and this is part of the the um, the book process. Is that a lot of arguments that you spend a lot of time unpacking in the book get reduced um, to the sound bites? Um, and so I absolutely believe in defeating racism, overcoming racism. But what I explain in the book is um, by that I mean mitigating its effects. I don't know if we're ever be able to get rid of racism entirely. I, I don't know if the human condition is, is, is such that it's possible, but I do believe we can mitigate its effects so that racism does not have um, uh, the, you know, exorbitant effects on my life chances or, or my experiences here. And so that's the, that's the goal. And I think we've been successful. We've not won the race, but um, as I've said in, in other places, I'm much happier being a black man in 2021 than 1921 and certainly than 1821. So that is a sign of progress. And it is a sign that we can mitigate the effects of racism uh, over time with good policy. Um, I, I will be honest, though, in like, policymakers today that I think have it just right, hitting, saying the right things, uh, framing the issue correctly, um, looking to build coalitions instead of sort of demonize the other. Uh, it's very, very hard for me to to find that, that person. Um, I will say that probably my favorite person in Congress right now is Lauren Underwood out of um, Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because she is about the business of policy and doesn't really engage in a lot of the flaming rhetoric or, or, or I'm sorry, fiery rhetoric or um, divisive appeals. Um, she just sort of puts her head down and does the work. And she almost didn't win re-election in her very purple district. Um, almost, I, I think, because it was it was hard to distinguish where she sat on issues because she wasn't a firebrand. And it was, you know, people had to sort of do the work of what, it, how does she vote and what does she believe um, and it, it, to, to, uh, to understand where she sat instead of just assuming that she was, um, you know, super far left or right. more centrist. And so, um, but I, I, one of the things I call for in the book is transformative leadership and the bench is thin 
right now at the national level. Um, and, I, you know, here's the hope and we get some a few courageous and principled folks that will, will beat back the, um, the, the divisiveness that's happening politically and, uh, and stand up for what's right. Why, why do you think it, there's such a divide? It does seem there's some folk who, as it relates to race matters, there's some folks who are just almost, um, their narrative, it feels like we're fixed back in 1821. Or that, <laughs> and, and yet there are others saying, no, 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 we've made progress, but we still have ways to go. But there's, there's tension between these two things. What, why yeah. is that? Uh, you know, it's, so politically, drawing stark con contrast between you and your opponents is is kind of good politicking. It's it's good election, electoral politics anyway. So folks know or are clear about who it is they're voting for. But what I don't like is the way race gets weaponized by both sides, frankly, and uh, and used as a way of saying, you know, if you support this person, you're supporting a racist, or if you support this person, you're supporting a race-centric view of everything. And you can't talk about any issue without it boiling down to race and pointing out one side is is for the racist outcome and one side is for the not racist outcome. Uh, and so simplifying that, simplifying race in that way is wholly unhelpful and actually leads to anti-democratic impulses in the nation that is more destructive for what we're trying to accomplish here than um than, than the, the conversation itself, the, the, the sort of the outcomes of it. I, and, but this is, this is kind of how it's always worked. We, we don't, especially when it comes to race, we don't like having the long, nuanced, difficult conversations about it. It's much easier to just bumper sticker your opponent's position, put yourself in the opposite of it, and then go out and sell narratives that you're the good, whole, true American and the other side is, is trying to destroy the country. Um, I think one of the big issues is that our terms are getting mixed up now. And so when we say structural racism, institutional racism, um, systemic racism, uh, anti uh, critical race theory, anti-racism, like no one knows what these, what these, are, these are words that are in the academy that have very specific meanings and were never intended to be uh, discussed in, in, in public for, for uh, those who've not studied these things to sort of weaponize them. Uh, but that's what's happening. And so I think one of the first things we can do before having any conversation about race is to standardize our language. And this is something we did in the military all the time. When If I say, as I say in the book, that, that structural racism presents an existential threat to America, some people can hear that and say, oh, this guy thinks that, you know, we're about to have another civil war or that America is a racist nation and it's going to and it's going to crumble and fall because it, it it won't recognize white supremacy or white privilege. And that's not at all what the argument is. But you have to, you know, like the, when I talk about structural racism, when I talk about existential threats in America, defining America is not the nation state, but the idea and thinking about is racism compatible with with equality? Of course not. And so, of course, if racism prevails, then we have actually lost the American idea, which is why racism is an th existential threat to it. But you have to be willing to engage at that level um, to make yourself vulnerable, uh, to be willing to sacrifice and practice forbearance uh, in engaging these topics and other people if you really want to make progress on the race question. And frankly, I just don't think we have enough in our leadership that are willing to do that kind of hard, nuanced work to bring people together and not to, to tear us apart. 
Brilliant. Brilliant. Right, well, I'll certainly be purchasing your book without question. I've got a long trip coming up. I'll be adding this to my I'll need to check some additional luggage just for all the books I have. It sounds, <laughs> sounds really important. It's, it's troubling, though, that, that in your research and analysis and, and thoughtful examination of the issue, you don't see a lot of voices uh, in the world that are that are are mapping against solutions. But so we, we have a section uh, of the conversation that we call the, the speed round, Ted, where I will offer up different individuals, maybe different philosophies, ask you to pick one and tell us why. Um, we'll start with our, our standard bearer, which is Malcolm or Martin. Yeah, it's, it, this is a tough one, um, but I will, I will go with Martin on this one, uh, mostly because he repurposed the language of our frame, framers and uh, showed how it was compatible with racial equality and compatible with government um, putting forth policies that move us toward the promise of America instead of uh, away from it. Um, but Martin was important because he was a truth. To, he made people sit with very uncomfortable truths. And while Martin Luther King didn't avoid the truth, um, Malcolm was, uh, he, he punched you in the face with it. And that's necessary sometimes, but for my style, it's, uh, it's, it's not really where I'm at, um, even though I recognize the, the utility in, um, in, in the approach. Ultimately, though, the two came together and recognized that they're kind of fighting for the same thing uh, with different tactics. And even Malcolm toned it down some, and then Martin stepped his, his up some uh, mm -hmm. before he was assassinated. But uh, on the whole, I think um, the, the King approach is probably more aligned to mine, or I'm more aligned to his, rather. S civil rights or economic development? Yeah, civil rights, without a doubt. Um, I, I am a firm believer in um, unleashing Black ingenuity and talent and allowing folks to um, to be able to, to, to be self-determining. But I, I'm also a believer that if you don't protect, if government doesn't protect folks' rights when they're violated or infringed upon, then there's no amount of economic ingenuity or talent that will overcome uh, a, a group or a nation's willingness to tear that economic power down. And um, I, this is what Eddie Gloud at Princeton calls the value gap. Um, as long as there are groups in our society that are not valued the same as other groups, then the policies you put forward are probably going to reproduce inequality because of the, the, the gap in value. And I think civil rights protections are the best way to, to ensure people's rights are protected so that they can be freed up to be economically success, successful. Well, that's a, that is a, a very thoughtful answer to, the, to those two choices. I appreciate that. And, and finally, uh, free speech or free enterprise? Hmm. Um, speech. Uh, um, yeah, speech. And, and some of this is because uh, the markets are incredibly valuable, uh, both to a society and economically. Um, and and sort of all the acumen that, that goes along with those things, but Mark, they do not care about people. They are they are they are clinically uh, their calculus is cold. Um, whereas speech requires voice. It, it, it requires you giving people space to voice themselves, their opinions, their views. And while those views may not win the win the day. Um, um, the, creating space for people's ideas and um, to, to, and their agency, I think, is incredibly important and precedes um, the the ability to to uh, protect to have and protect free enterprise. 
Thank you, Ted. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're coming to the end, but I want to I go back just for a moment to your, your introduction, because I'm really struck by how some key institutions played a, played a role in your own life. So you, mm. you started talking about your parents. They were married. It clearly seems like they was a strong foundation to start. Then it sounds like a religious commitment was extremely important then on top of that, education, clearly. And I wonder how you think about these sort of the role of the cultural institutions. You know, there, there's racism, you know, and but where does, where does our investment, I mean, our in the Black community investment in those particular institutions that were so crucial to your development, where does that play in the spectrum of how we approach racism, how we diminish the role of race? You know, are, are those forces so big that those are actually the answer um, to address some of these perennial issues? How, how do you think about how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think and so I, I think the so the, the black church, um, the, the education gospel, like these were these were things that black folks felt they needed to make it through tomorrow and then to do better the day after. And so you needed education to get out of the hood or the off the farm or wherever. You needed faith, some faith in something bigger than what was happening in your immediate circumstances to latch on to, to sort of the star that would carry you, you forward. Um, the family was where you received your emotional support, your financial, economic stability. Um, but what we're seeing over the last, I don't know, maybe 50 years or so is a a lack of faith in these same institutions and, and churches. Um, and we, there's, and it's not unjustified. I mean, like there, there's a reason the black church the, with mega churches and sort of the prosperity gospel sometimes gets the message off track and education where you leave with a college degree, but now the market doesn't really have a place for you or the salary is not right, especially when you've got six figures worth of, of debt to, to get there. So, but I don't think the answer is burn down those institutions or, or disempower them and including the family, the church, school, the military, and find something else. I think the answer is the set of challenges we're facing now are not Jim Crow. And so what are the institutions that will help us um, uh, push the nation closer to the promise of tomorrow? And I think institutions are still the answer. I just don't know if they're the same institutions from before, but whatever the new ones are, they will provide the same things as those institutions did, stability and faith and um, um, a means by which to be better than you are. Uh, I've seen studies that suggest the, the reason things like bowling leagues and Cub Scouts and churches are seeing dwindling membership is one is because we're much more transient as a population than we were. And those things require, you know, you be in an area, finding a new church is difficult, finding friends and leagues are difficult. So what are those smaller, transient, more malleable institutions that we could latch onto? Are they fraternities and sororities? Are they, um, you know, yoga clubs or, or running clubs or, um, you know, book clubs? I, I don't know, but right. I think we have to find out what the present generations, you know, really the under 45 crowd, what are the institutions that give them purpose and meaning and connection to society? And then figure out how to wield those things to provide the things that traditional institutions used to provide, but now folks are no longer uh, seeking in those places, but are looking for the same thing in other places. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, unfortunately, social media 
is yeah. often playing that role and it's 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 empty it's emptiness what it's what it's delivering right so so, so maybe on that note uh this is a, as we talked about you know nike and i came up this idea a long time ago uh to create this idea of the invisible man to talk to young men like daryl the 16 year old who lives in forgotten usa black kid who's trying to make his way in the world if he were to pick up a copy of your book and he's trying to decide, like, how is he going to forge his path? What would you say to him, given the complexities of where young people in particular face these days? Yeah, I would tell him to optimize all things in the span of his control and that um, that's not going to be fair. He, he, he's not going to have opportunities that other people in other places are going to have. Um, he, he's not going to have resources that other people in other places have, but he does have agency in his, in, in his sphere, um, whatever that looks like, and then optimize all of that stuff. The people, the, the institutions, the, um, the opportunities as they present themselves, and then uh, um, and, and not, don't do it just for material gain, but, but have a, something more... Um, more at the core of who you are as a person that's driving you. Uh, and so if, if we tell young black men do well in school so you can make six figure job and get a, a pretty wife yeah. and have a house out in the suburbs, that's the wrong motivation in my view. Um, instead, you know, optimize all of the opportunities within your span of control, whatever they may look like and do it because of something. If you don't like the conditions in your neighborhood, then optimize those things so that, when you're in a position to make change, you can change it for the next yep. generation. If you don't like the way the, the uh, you know, other nations treat the United States, or if you don't like the way the school system, um, you know, your school system operated, or um, you're fascinated by technology and you're looking for ways to improve communities or opportunities or start your own business, whatever it is, um, then allow the, the principle of the thing you're interested in drive you and not like the material gain from from excellence be the thing that drives you um i, I will be honest with you though if someone had told me that at 16 i don't know if i would have been ready to receive it uh and because frankly my parents told me that at 16 and <laughs> i did well in school because i had to or it was you know there was corporal punishment awaiting if, if i if i didn't and i also did it because i wanted to make them proud and so mm -hmm. the last the la this is sort of where i'll wrap up the last thing i would say is find the person you admire whoever that is school teacher parents uncle cousin whoever and then work to make them proud and uh if you can and if you do that then you will position yourselves to capitalize on future opportunities as they arise. Um, and when you have a better understanding of, of what you want to do with your life. Wow. Very wise words. Yep. You know, meeting the aspirations of someone that you respect and have a great uh, amount of admiration for can be very inspiring and a great motivation. Yeah. Theodore, Dr. Theodore Johnson. <laughs> Uh, author of a great new book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining this episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, if our viewers would like to see other episodes, you can go to www.invisible.men. And my name is Ian Rowe. 
I'm Nike Fagers. Ted, thank you so much. I mean, you are a case study example of why this show exists. I'm thrilled to have entered your sphere, and uh, I certainly will be monitoring uh, the contributions you make to America and starting with this book, which I'll definitely be getting. And uh, thank you for your time. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. When, thank you both. And it's when the stars begin to fall, overcoming racism and renewing the promise of America. Thank you. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.